Welcome to Feminine, the podcast dedicated to the feminine lens on mental health, the healing arts, and spirituality. My name is Priscilla Alexandra Hine, and I am a licensed practitioner of the healing arts and licensed clinical social worker in the state of California. Welcome to the Autumnal Equinox, second season of Feminine. We land on the equinox, which is a Latin word that means equal night. That is an indication of the equality between shadow and light that occurs on each equinox. So we know that the day and the night will be about the same in length and duration. So there's an indication of balance happening here. Um, to give you some insight from the Old Farmer's Almanac, which was founded in 1792 and remains a great resource for many a thing regarding seasons and nature and lunar cycles and all of the beauty of living in a world of creation. During the equinox, the sun crosses what we call the celestial equator, which is an imaginary extension into space of Earth's equator line. And the equinox occurs precisely when the sun's center passes through this line. It's pretty cool. Um, my my family comes from a country called Nicaragua, which happens to be pretty close to the equator. And man, that sun is brutal. Um, but I certainly love it because I'm a Southern California kind of gal. And, you know, the, the heat, more heat, the better, right? But that equator um, in Nicaragua and that humidity is pretty unique. It's such a beautiful place. So when the sun crosses the equator from north to south, this marks the autumnal equinox. When it crosses from the south to the north, that's the vernal equinox, and vernal is our springtime. So both of these times are an incredible opportunity for us to have mm, moments of uh, great growth, right? Spring is this delicious energy of newness and excitement. And then autumn is this really, um, for me, it's delicious, but it's not necessarily as exciting more than it is um, rewarding. But it is also an indication of growth and fruit and newness and uh, seeing indications of your labor coming into fruition. I love autumn. My baby, my oldest baby, well, both my babies are born in autumn. My two star seeds, <laughs> my magic angels whom I adore. Um, my first baby has a Libra sun, and she's all about justice, and my second baby has her north node in Libra, and I can see them play off one another so well, and you can see with that constellation of the, um, the balance uh, trays, right, very symbolic of the goddess Mayat, who is an ancient Egyptian goddess, um, whom I actually resonate with as far as my lettering and my name, which I will divulge more info for you in time, how you can get that as well if you'd like, um, that kind of information. But Mayat is the same energy as my uh, name, and she is the goddess of justice. And so there's lots of Libra and beauty around the energy and the femininity in my home and the young girls that I am raising who are just a great gift to me. So autumn for me is a very feminine time um, and a really beautiful time to be a mom and to celebrate the two beauties that I've been blessed to have and uh, to just come around them with a posture of gratitude. Today, we are going to start our autumnal series of feminine, and we're going to start off kind of with a bang. And um, 
you know, I ask that you get yourself a little water, maybe um, a little snack, <laughs> if you will, uh, perhaps even a lovely pillow of some kind, because we're going to be diving deep. We're going to start talking about Enneagram. If you're not familiar with Enneagram, go back to our Naked Summer series and uh, really digest and process um, this notion of looking into it. I highly encourage it for you. I also want to do a couple of shout outs to you before we get started. These are some podcasts that have been really beneficial to me, and we speak um, a similar language, you will find. Uh, the first one is Cosmic Cousins. This is such a lovely place to learn about astrology in a very practical and simple way. And uh, Cosmic Cousins was turned on to me by the lovely Lindsay Mack at Tarot for the Wild Soul. She is just a delight. And these... Um, these lovely individuals are stationed out in Brooklyn, New York, and you will find that our language tends to be a bit the same, and it's pretty cool. We are definitely cousins and definitely friends, cosmic friends. We've never met in person, but you don't really have to meet people to know um, that you are on the same page. So I want to shout both of those podcasts out to you and to... Um, encourage you if you're curious about astrology look into cosmic cousins and if you're curious about tarot look into tarot for the wild soul um, it's super important to know that when you explore the healing arts and the occult it, you want to explore it with people who are grounded and healthy on an emotional mental and spiritual level and both of these individuals um their work indicates that they truly are grounded and they've done quite a bit of research. It's really profound. The next podcast that I would like to shout out to you, which I hope that you reference and go back and download the episode that uh, correlates with your Enneagram number, is the Sleeping At Last podcast. This was turned on to me by my wonderful uh, friend who is just so loyal and just a truly amazing friend who has journeyed with me through our own spiritualities and spiritual trauma experiences together. Um, shout out to my Palestinian friend who is uh, truly a, a lover of beauty and God and an exemplar of compassion. She gave me the Sleeping At Last podcast, and I listened to the Enneagram 8 episode. If you're not familiar, I'm an Enneagram 8, and uh, that song that the gentleman created is by far the most profound art piece that I could ever imagine being created to describe the agony of being an Enneagram 8. And yes, for me, being an 8 is a very agonizing experience most of the time, as I'm sure life can be for most of us, but um, we're going to get into why that could be. So what I wanted to present to you today and tell you a little bit about as far as myself and my own clinical practice and how I utilize uh, Enneagram in my personal life and what I would like to offer to you here in this space is from a mental health perspective. So we're going to really be diving into and looking at my specialty in my clinical practice, and that is personality disorders and psychosis. Those are the two types of mental health treatment that I really, um, over the years, have learned to work well with individuals who suffer from personality disorders and psychosis of some kind. And um, what I have identified for you here in each Enneagram number is not only a correlating mental health diagnosis, but also a personality disorder diagnosis. And I offer this information from you through the DSM-5, which is uh, a material, it's a clinical material guideline for mental health practitioners across the United States of America. And it actually helps us learn about how to identify our emotional selves and maintain a posture of groundedness and stability while navigating the complexities of emotions and what can happen to us in our lives if we veer from um, really uh, digesting and allowing ourselves to experience our emotions as they come, right? Which we've talked about in our uh, last season, how emotions are really relevant and really uh, necessary for us in order to heal as a community, as a collective. So get yourself some water. Get yourself a little snack, and let's start 
talking about Enneagram, excuse me, if you don't know your number, you, um, I strongly encourage you to locate a paper test on the internet. I don't encourage electronic tests. They're biased. There's um, a paper test that you can find, and I will uh, list it in the description of this podcast uh, after it's published for you. It's pretty extensive. But go ahead and take that exam and identify your number and start to really feel it out for yourself. Don't allow anybody to identify your number for you. It's it's toxic. It's not healthy, okay? You have to be able to identify and know yourself for who you really are and make peace with that to an extent in order to utilize Enneagram for, for all that it's worth. And I have found in my life, you're going to hear me rustling some pages here, but I have found in my life uh, Enneagram as far as... Um, its value and what it really offers us is an opportunity to see where we stand in society. We live in a culture that is extremely competitive and we don't often realize that there's a delusion of competition that can occur within each of us. And we are seeking to dominate each other in really interesting ways by not being self-aware and not recognizing that each of us has learned behavior patterns based off of where we come from and our various coping skills that have allowed us to survive. So when we talk about fight or flight and when we talk about survival, we're looking into um, methods in which individuals have created um, ways to navigate uh, how to be a human being in a modern society, right? So Enneagram actually kind of grounds us. And I want to give you a little bit of history about it before we get started. And I want to tell you about the gentleman who created the symbol behind the Enneagram. It's comparable to a pentagram, but it's all right. It's not a pentagram. It's an Enneagram. And I don't really have anything against uh, pentagrams. So uh, if it were, I would not have a problem with that. But the Enneagram reveals, um, and this is uh, according to the text, and it's really a wonderful uh, material. It's called Understanding the Enneagram, The Practical Guide to Personality Types by Don Richard Riso and Russ Hudson. And I actually encourage this over um, Father Richard Rohr's work. And I love Father Richard Rohr, and I hope to work with him one day. But I prefer Riso and Hudson over Rohr because it's dense and cerebral. And if you are someone who needs a little bit more grounded material, this is a great reference for you. You can also locate, um, you can purchase this type of material and find your um, Enneagram number through, through that method. So um, according to Riso and Hudson, this is how they describe Enneagram. The Enneagram reveals the patterns by which we organize and give meaning to all of our experiences. Its basic premise is that if we could see the core pattern around which we organize and interpret all of our experiences. And it was developed by Oscar Ichazo, and he developed the Enneagram symbol and introduced it during the 1960s. There's actually a lot of talk about uh, Enneagram material being nothing new, and that's actually really true. So essentially what Oscar did, and he's a Latin uh, gentleman, what he did was he gathered a lot of ancient mystic knowledge and put it together into different sections that he called Enneagram. And I won't be expanding on the density of what the symbol in and of itself represents because it's extensive. And um, I could really spend a whole day just trying to give you some insight into the symbol, the symbolism, and what it really represents. But what Oscar did was ultimately place um, an abundance of information around metaphysics and science and quantum physics, sacred geometry, um, the occult, all of the healing arts. He put them together after an extensive amount of study and created something called Enneagram to help folks identify their number, where they go to in a time of stress, where they go to in a time of growth, and from there, where they're being navigated by, whether it's through their instincts, their mind, or through their heart. And it's actually really beautiful material and can um, 
Not necessarily. You know, I don't think Enneagram can save your life, but what it can do is help you identify who you are and recognize that nobody is better than anyone, for God's sake. And that is where I would encourage you to look into Richard Rohr, because there's a lot of humility around his work in recognizing that everybody has a place at the table. And that's a lot of uh, the teachings behind contemplative and mystic Christianity that I absolutely advocate for. So uh, let's get started, okay? So we're gonna talk about personality disorders and, and um, I'm gonna give certain diagnoses for certain numbers, as well as um, not just personality types that can occur within each number, but also mental health diagnoses that can occur within each number. This is not specific to an individual, it's specific to the personality type being represented to the number in the context of mental health. So let me say that again. We're going to take a little break. We're going to breathe, okay? Let's breathe. Inhale for four seconds. Hold it for seven. Exhale for eight. We're going to do our breathing exercise one more time. Inhale for four. Hold it for seven. Exhale for eight. We're going back to the body. We're embracing the notion of pneuma, breath, God, spirit. We're filling our bodies with the understanding that we are one with creation and divine. We are making a conscious decision to step into the soul and to allow things to unfold accordingly. We are aware of the fact that we're talking about dense and rich material, but it need not influence our stability or our steadiness. This material is an indication of divine's ability to communicate through the creation of each individual on the planet who chooses to step into their soul purpose and live in alignment. We are grateful for gentlemen who create material like Oscar. We are blessed by the centuries-old uh, desert mystics and prophets who deeply longed to have a closeness with divine while living in a realm of justice and peace. We are blessed to know that Christ is an amazing prophet, but this is not an indication that we do not have the right to decide, but an indication of how to live with intention. We are blessed to remember that woman has her rightful place in the same seat of king and queen. There is no difference here when we come to this space. We know that femininity is relevant and it is what births forth the masculinity. We recognize that it is the seed of masculinity that necessitates growth within the womb of femininity and the cycle continues to flow in a sacred holy mystery. We release the notion that the church is a building, that we must live, act, and breathe in a certain way in order to understand who divine is. We released the notion that the Old Testament is relevant, it no longer has a purpose. We are not coming forth to the space with a desire to dominate, or to compete, we kneel in awe of love. 
We kneel in awe of creation. We kneel in awe of the magnetic energy that can take place when two individuals collide on a physical level and create a cosmic friction which brings forth spirit realm stardust because we are nothing but stardust. We come to this space knowing that when we talk about mental health, when we talk about the healing arts, and when we talk about spirituality, we are looking at ourselves through a biological, psychological, sociological, spiritual lens. When we talk about Enneagram, we are not competing for superiority or less than. We recognize that all numbers have and serve a glorious purpose. We come to this space knowing that forgiveness is the epicenter of Enneagram, and we understand that how in which we function as living beings allows us to release the notion that we need to condemn others for being human. We do not have to do that. That is a responsibility that has been left up to all of the energies that be, that take care of the healing and the justice that we don't have control of. But we make the choices we need to make to be the best versions of ourselves, knowing that we too deserve peace and healing and change. It is autumn, it is a time of growth. It is a time of balance. It is a time of equality. It is a beautiful opportunity for us to shift. Thank you, God, for summer. We're so glad it's over. That was really sexy. <laughs> but it's really time to go back within and to reap the harvest of that which we sowed seeds into. Okay. I'd like to tell you a little bit about personality disorders before we get started and um, why I appreciate them so much and how they have influenced me as far as my clinical work and the manner in which I go about uh, providing assistance to individuals. It is you know, I've, spoke, I've spoken about this a little bit, but personality disorders, in essence, are not necessarily a chemical imbalance of the brain, but a behavior pattern that has been so deeply ingrained into how one should function that they have a personality type that is not able to recognize it is causing harm. So I want to really repeat that again. A personality disorder is when an individual is really unable to see that the manner in which they have utilized their person is not, um, it's, it's, a bit, it's causing, let me pull back. Let me read this to you. This is from psychiatry.org. And I hope that this can help us clarify this dialogue. Personality is the way of thinking, feeling, and behaving that makes a person different from other people. An individual's personality is influenced by experiences, environment, which is surroundings and life situations, and inherited characteristics. A person's personality typically stays the same over time, and this is where we understand that nature versus nurture, right? There are things that we have been taught that we cannot change. It's just not how it's going to go. And when we waver from that, what ends up happening is our personality um, can start to adopt some behavior patterns that are difficult to um, extinguish, even though they're causing harm to us and to others. Uh, Psychiatry.org goes on to describe, a personality disorder is a way of thinking, feeling, and behaving that deviates from the expectations of the culture, causes distress or problems functioning, and lasts over time. 
So again, we're seeing this consistent behavior of a personality that is really not allowing someone to be the best version of themselves because it's not a mental illness. It's a personality disorder. There's an inability to see the self and to grasp the self, which really influences the behaviors and uh, hinders folks from really being able to change in a healthy way. So personality disorders are extremely common. They um, exist uh, all over the place. They, you might hear uh, people talk about narcissistic personality disorder quite casually, um, borderline personality disorder quite casually, and all of that is very real and very much um, a type of thinking and a type of behavior pattern that refuses to change or shift because it just lacks a great deal of self-awareness. That differs from a mental health diagnosis, which personality disorders are mental health diagnosis, according to the DSM-5, which is um, the diagnostic statistics manual that we use in the mental health field. But more than this, it differs from um, a mental health diagnosis in the sense that we're not looking at psychosis, we're not looking at depression, we're not looking at um, extreme highs and lows, and we're not looking at severe anxiety we're looking at behavior patterns. So we're, varying, we're veering from emotions and stepping into behaviors. And they're two very different things. Behaviors are the external expressions. Emotions are the internal, um, really the internal uh, thought processes, thought processes that are going on. So let me uh, begin by reading to you the types of personality diso disorders that are uh, current to the most recent update to the DSM. These changes occur. Um, the DSM is constantly changing in their understanding of how humans work and order their personalities and their emotions and their behaviors. But these are our most recent, and these are the current 10. And after I read these to you, I'm going to identify to you which Enneagram, Enneagram number really uh, can fit each personality type when they, um, it's not even about being healthy or unhealthy. It's about determining how someone can cope according to uh, where they are in that energy field. So first we're going to start with antisocial personality disorder. This is a pattern of disregarding or violating the rights of others. A person with antisocial personality disorder may not conform to social norms. They may repeatedly lie or deceive others or may act impulsively. Next we have avoidant personality disorder. This is a pattern of extreme shyness feelings of inadequacy, and extreme sensitivity to criticism. And be mindful of the language behind these things, behind these descriptions, please. People with avoidant personality disorder may be unwilling to get involved with people unless they are certain of being liked, be preoccupied with being criticized or rejected. Or they may view themselves as not being good enough or socially inept. So that's avoidant personality disorder. So already we're seeing a difference between being antisocial and avoiding. Now we're going to look at borderline personality disorder. Borderline personality disorder is a pattern of instability in personal relationships, intense emotions, poor self-image, and impulsivity. A person with borderline personality disorder may go to great lengths to avoid being abandoned, have repeated suicide attempts, display inappropriate intense anger, or have ongoing feelings of emptiness. And I will expand for you how these look in the day-to-day. -day. Next, we're looking at dependent personality disorder. This is a pattern of needing to be taken care of and submissive and clingy behavior. People with dependent personality disorder may have difficulty making daily decisions without reassurance from others, or may feel uncomfortable or helpless when alone because of fear of inability to take care of themselves. 
histrionic personality disorder, a pattern of excessive emotion and attention seeking. People with histrionic personality disorder may be uncomfortable when they're not the center of attention. They may use physical appearance to draw attention to themselves or have rapidly shifting or exaggerated emotions. Narcissistic personality disorder, a pattern of need for admiration and lack of empathy for others. A person with narcissistic personality disorder may have a grandiose sense of self-importance, a sense of entitlement, take advantage of others, or lack empathy. We have four more. Obsessive compulsive personality disorder, a pattern of preoccupation with orderliness, perfection, and control. A person with obsessive compulsive personality disorder may be overly focused on details or schedules. They may work excessively, not allowing time for leisure or friends, or may be inflexible in their morality and their values. This is not obsessive compulsive disorder. It is obsessive compulsive personality disorder. It's very different. And that's important that we recognize we're not looking, again, we're not looking at um, a mental health diagnosis from an emotional perspective. We're looking at it from a personality behavioral perspective. Then we have paranoid personality disorder, a pattern of being suspicious of others and seeing them as mean or spiteful. People with paranoid personality disorder often assume people will harm or deceive them and don't confide in others or become close to them. Schizoid personality disorder, being detached from social relationships and expressing little emotion. A person with schizoid personality disorder typically does not seek close relationships, chooses to be alone, and seems to not care about praise or criticism from others. Then we have schizotypal personality disorder, a pattern of being very uncomfortable in close relationships, having distorted thinking and eccentric behavior. A person with schizotypal personality disorder may have odd beliefs or odd or peculiar behavior or speech or may have excessive social anxiety. It's a lot, isn't it? Well, I love personality disorders, and I love working with individuals with personality disorders, and because I've been um, diagnosing for an extended period of time at this point in my life, they're very easy to spot. They exist uh, very easily within each of us if we do not know how to feel, if we do not allow ourselves how to feel, if we do not allow ourselves to be held accountable in our long-term extended relationships, and if we choose to um, ultimately not change our coping skills and our coping patterns. Personality disorders are incredibly easy to adopt. Ultimately, what ends up happening is that uh, a person is a culmination of many of them at once, um, but each Enneagram number, depending on where it stands right and where it sits on the Enneagram, really can reflect a personality disorder, um, a particular one. So I'd like to go down the list and identify for you, according to our lovely Enneagram, which uh, number represents the personality disorder type in particular. And then uh, in our next episode, we're going to talk about uh, coping skills and how to assist with this. If, well, you know what? Maybe we'll keep it in this episode. Um, we might. I'm not sure. <laughs> So without mental health professionalism, I believe that Enneagram can really uh, run amok and can cause quite a bit of havoc if you don't know how to keep it in line. It really necessitates some groundedness. So Enneagram 1, this is uh, the person who is really driven by reformation and perfectionism, and they really love and, and need justice in their life. They need to know that um, what they're doing is really important and it's making a difference, right? Well, as you can see, that type of energy is really going to juxtapose to obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. Are you following me with this? Can you see how when you um, are motivated by the need to um, really be um, perfect or, and I don't want to be loose with my language, but I, I really want to hone in on motivated by a need to um, have order 
and have things uh, have a strong structure, right? Because structure is really important. Society would fail without structure. We need Enneagram One. They're so relevant. Well, as you can see, because of that motivation and because of that need, what can end up happening is a personality type of obsessive compulsiveness can come forth. And that's not identified through rituals. Uh, that's not the mental health diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder. It is the need for um, perfectionism and control and the behaviors that correlate with that. So that's Enneagram 1. And so if you're an Enneagram 1, keep obsessive compulsive personality disorder in mind. And do some research for yourself here because it will be very helpful for you in uh, being able to navigate how to really implement change in the extreme need for structure. But also know that you're really important and we love you very much. Then we have Enneagram 2, and this is kind of sweet. <laughs> Oh, twos. You're so precious. Um, I probably say that because as an eight, I need to go to two in order to really uh, grow. Um, but, you know, I don't want to be too egotistical, but my God, you know, that's hard for us. Um, so I love twos. I think they're so sweet and just really endearing. Um, but again, that's probably my own ego. <laughs> So Enneagram 2, I want you to be mindful of histrionic personality disorder. And please remember, I'm not diagnosing anybody because I don't even know who you are. I'm just simply paralleling Enneagram 2 personality disorders to help us each uh, have tangible diagnostic material that can help us grow from stagnant places and come out of coping skills, behaviors um, that are rooted into our brain chemistry that are really wreaking havoc. So this histrionic personality disorder is quite funny. Um, when I've worked with people with histrionic personality disorder, everything is a disaster. It's great. <laughs> and tears are just magical. You know, they just can just come at any minute. It's, it's fantastic. I love histrionic personality disorder in the sense that um, it's such an a incredible capacity to utilize this extreme emotional um, polarity at any minute in order to get what you want. It's incredibly manipulative and um, overwhelming. It's frightening because there are, there's often no reason for the emotional response, for the depth of the emotional response that can occur. But if you are an Enneagram 2 because you love to make people happy, because you love to be needed by people, because it makes you feel safe knowing that you are loved by somebody, it's actually really easy to access this type of energy and to create this personality type. So histrionic personality disorder. Then we have Enneagram 3. And Enneagram 3, um, what we're really looking at here is narcissistic personality disorder. Enneagram 3s are pretty unique numbers. Um, I, you know, no number is better than the other, right? Every number serves its purpose, and they're all very special. But the Enneagram 3 in particular, their ability to uh, tap out of feelings because they feel so much is really what creates this narcissism that uh, can just wreak havoc, not just in other people's lives, but in their own lives. Who wants to be tied down to never having a sense of empathy? Can you imagine? That is so painful. So Enneagram 3, you know, this need to be successful, this motivation to have accolades and your image is everything to you. If somebody finds out something about you that contradicts the image that you want to put forth, you will run and you will never look back and you will never have anything to do with that because you must be perceived a certain way. So the Enneagram 3 will build an identity off of um, really a, a notion of who they're trying to be that is often unreal. And that can really bring forth the narcissistic personality disorder. Then we have Enneagram 4. 
And with this, we are looking at avoidant personality disorder. Another personality disorder that I gave Enneagram 3 was antisocial personality disorder because narcissism and antisocial personality disorder can really play. They uh, can play off of one another. So for the Enneagram 3, please look into those two, and that can really help you kind of hone in on where you um, can learn to have empathy for other people, even though it's hard when you want to be perceived a certain way. So for Enneagram 4, I have avoidant personality disorder. And this is this um, refusal to, um, you're going to hear my crinkling of my paper on the background. Um, because Enneagram 4 really needs to feel like they are the greatest, most important um, aspect of the equation, they will go into a state of being antisocial when they feel threatened that they're not the greatest. And this behavior pattern will take place and then the so you know the personality disorder can really just um, emerge and it's it's quite interesting in that um, how the Enneagram 4 energy and how the uh, avoidant personality disorder really play on one another because it's just a complete uh, refusal to be um, to, to, to not be the to not be well received it's a refusal right and every you know all the numbers want to be the best and you know ultimately we're looking at that but when we're really honing in on behaviors and how they're being utilized it's that for that Enneagram that really can utilize that avoidant personality disorder quite well that behavior pattern and also Enneagram 4 is really great at being a borderline personality disorder so that's very similar energies here so the Enneagram 4 um, with the you know the need they're driven by the need to feel really important and it's actually you know, it's quite heartbreaking right Enneagram 4 and Enneagram 8 really resonate with one another and that they both feel violated their innocence was really violated somewhere and so there's this need to just be relevant and be important because people matter and feelings matter. And so um, the Enneagram 4 can really get stuck in this borderline personality disorder, which is this consistent instability. There's nothing consistent about relationships. And everything is very um, intense on an emotional level. And the fear of being abandoned is so immense that they will uh, create delusions um, and display just really provocative behavior in an effort to try and uh, never be abandoned. It's pretty interesting. So if you are Enneagram 4, um, I hope that information is helpful for you. Do some research, look into these personality disorders, and uh, see if your uh, coping skills have created any sort of behavioral pattern that you've gotten stuck into. And we will talk about um, in our next episode how to overcome that. Next, we have Enneagram 5. This is the schizotypal personality disorder. God, I love this personality disorder. So quirky and unique. But again, see, is it... Uh, how funny. Of course I would, because I'm an Enneagram 8, for God's sake. <laughs> and Enneagram 8 goes to 5 under stress. Of course I love everything that has to do with myself. God. <laughs> That's very silly. So anyways, what I like about the schizotypal personality disorder is it's just so bizarre. <laughs> you know, it's just such a bizarre personality disorder to have. And it really comes from being incredibly paranoid. There's just nothing safe on the planet. Nobody's safe. And I'm not going to tell anybody how I feel about anything ever. Um, and I'm going to be very strange and have just incredibly bizarre feelings. It's very comparable to schizoid. But it differs in the fact that... Um, uh, schizotypal won't necessarily um, disregard close relationships. They will try their very best to have them. Schizoid will be like, mm, no, dangerous, not having any close relationships at all. So schizoid is actually, you can imagine, very emotionally damaging in that way. It's difficult to come out of. 
but for Enneagram 5, because they are so heady and they're constantly in this thinking space and it can really become a, a, a trapped analysis paralysis, right? I had a very dear friend once who described it like this. It's analysis paralysis where you're just so paralyzed by every single thought and every single potential of something that's going wrong. You just are stuck there. Well, Enneagram 5 really struggles with that because they really uh, need boundaries in order to feel safe and they often become suspicious of people if they cross the boundary in one tiny way. And then they're like, no, you're dangerous. So that can really result in the schizotypal personality disorder of just having a lot of distorted thinking and just being very eccentric, um, very peculiar in how they talk or uh, even have a bit of social anxiety. Enneagram 5. Of course I want to give an accolade to Enneagram 5. I love living in my in my time of stress, good God. <laughs> um, then we have Enneagram 6, and this is really looking at two personality disorders, and one of them is the paranoid personality er, uh, disorder, which I would also um, uh, juxtapose to the Enneagram 8, but Enneagram 6 and Enneagram 8 are natural leaders, and so it's easy for us to become paranoid because many times natural type uh, leader types are uh, taken advantage of. And we can go into that in our next episode. But for now, I want Enneagram 6 to look at dependent personality disorder. And this is really um, this need of, um, <clears throat> you know, the 6 is very loyal. And they really need to be in their relationships. And they really value um, uh, being kind of this um, figure of loyalty in each relationship that they have. And some of the greatest people I've ever met in my life are Enneagram Sixes, by the way. Uh, just really genuine friendship. If you want an amazing friend, find an Enneagram Six. These are the gr my greatest friends that I have had for over a decade um, are Enneagram Sixes. Um, the most loyal and faithful friends and people who really understand the value of relationships is the six. But what can come from that is because their identity is really based on how they are friends and how they are loyal to others, that can really create a posture of dependency on people in order to identify the self and in order to um, feel safe. So that's Enneagram 6, and now I want us to head into Enneagram 7, and how Don and, or excuse me, how Riso and Hudson identify the personality disorder for Enneagram 7 is histrionic personality disorder. And I actually have to agree with this, because um, 2 and 7 do tend to display an excessive amount of emotion when they are under stress, and it is pretty interesting how both 2 and 7 will utilize emotions to manipulate people and get their way. And as in Enneagram 8, I can tell you that the energy of the Enneagram 7 is incredibly strong. Um, I've been studying Enneagram at this point for eight years, and what's interesting about uh, the Enneagram is that 7 and 8 are identified as the strongest personality types in all of the Enneagram. And that doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, we have, you know, like our personalities are the best. No, it's the most dominating. And, you know, fortunately that comes with a lot of shame, but um, it, particularly if you're an eight with a seven wing, my God, it can be a little bit frustrating, but, um, or a seven with an eight wing, it kind of feels like, well, Jesus, you know, um, do I live on an island of, of intensity, you know? Um, but it is true how the seven, Enneagram seven energy really is, um, this constant polarity of needing, um, extremes that they can really ebb in, uh, ebb. Uh, back and forth in between. So the histrionic personality with uh, as well as the Enneagram 2 does seem quite fitting, and, and I agree with that. And I, I couldn't really identify another uh, personality disorder for Enneagram 7 either, so I was in full agreement with this. I did, I did think of obsessive-compulsive personality disorder for Enneagram 7. I think if you are an Enneagram 7, you may find yourself having that rigidity as well because... 
the structure can be quite helpful for an Enneagram 7 to cope, uh, particularly with their feelings of helplessness when they're kind of out of control. So you may uh, want to look into obsessive compulsive personality disorder as well if you identify as an Enneagram 7. Um, and then we have the Enneagram 8. Oh my goodness, isn't this so hard for me to talk about? Of course it is. Um, well, I'm an Enneagram 8. And um, one of, you know, I, I, do, I do resonate with antisocial personality disorder quite a bit. Um, there's a, a great uh, paranoia that can come from being an Enneagram 8. Uh, and especially when I tell you how I'm going to diagnose all the Enneagram numbers. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> I can't wait to give us a diagnosis. It's so cryptic, right? Um, but yeah, I think Enneagram 8 also really could resonate with borderline personality disorder. Um, Enneagram 8s can be incredibly cunning and incredibly manipulative in order to gain access to uh, control. And I often find that Enneagram 8 and Enneagram 4 will parallel one another in their ability to emotionally manipulate people. And so um, we have to really be careful with that personality disorder in particular for the borderline personality and then, you know, the antisocial one as well. Um, that can come with being in Enneagram 8. <laughs> and then we have the Enneagram 9. Gosh, you know, I don't really find many people give Enneagram 9s a hard time, but I certainly do. I've known so many 9s in my life, and I've loved many 9s in my life, and they've loved me. And, um, you know, 9s have really spent uh, quite a bit of energy in loving me a great deal. And I have loved every single 9 in my life so much, so very much. What a charming number Enneagram 9 is. Um, but because they're so damn charming, I think they really get to bypass a lot of the uh, criticism that the other numbers get. So I'm not going to skimp on them. <laughs> Out of love, my friends. We need you, nines. You're so, you're so precious, right? Nines really, I identified a dependent personality disorder. And my God, isn't it the damn truth? Um, nines really don't like to do anything um, that makes them uncomfortable. They are by far the most stubborn energy that I've ever interacted with um, out of all of the Enneagram numbers. And eights are stubborn. I mean, everybody's stubborn, right? You know, trying to get a nine to move is very comparable. It's very Taurian energy. And in astrology terms, a Taurus is just the my God, trying to get a Taurus to do anything is basically um, trying to get an ox to to walk through a field of mud. Um, that's really ultimately what a Taurus is. And every time I think of Enneagram 9 energy, I always have this uh, picture of a Taurus in my mind, a, a, an ox or a bull. And um, that's what makes them so charming because they're so committed to their convictions. But at the same time, they're so committed to their convictions, they end up depending upon other people in order to have emotions and feelings because they absolutely tap out. And I will diag I'll give you the diagnosis of the Enneagram 9 in a hot minute outside of a personality disorder night. And I would love for Enneagram 9 identifiers to do some research here and see if that resonates with them. Because um, again, I'm not diagnosing you. I'm only diagnosing the Enneagram numbers. But I hope with this mental health information, you can do some exploration and see if it resonates with you and the number that you identify with to maybe help you gain some, some footing and some, um, some leverage as far as where you can go in, in your own personal healing. So dependent personality disorder for Enneagram 9 and the need to uh, really latch on to other personalities in order to kind of heal and grow and having a difficult time uh, being alone. Nines really struggle with being, in a, uh, being alone, I find. So that is my uh, Enneagram number diagnoses as far as personality disorders. Uh, please check into those and uh, give me your feedback. Let me know if it resonates with you, if you feel comfortable. Of course, I'll keep it anonymous. I d I'm not, I'm not going to tell anybody if you resonate with a personality disorder. It's okay. Um, and also, please know that you, you know, diagnosing a personality disorder takes an extensive amount of um, experience and time. They're quite complex. So um, 
don't think you can diagnose yourself with a personality disorder. You really, you really can't. But if you can pick up on some behaviors here and there, um, my hope is that you can do some uh, self-reflection and really hone in on, on what it means to be the best version of yourself. So now from here, I'm just going to transition into some uh, diagnoses that are outside of the personality disorder category for each Enneagram number, and I will share them with, uh, with you here, and I hope that they're helpful. Uh, as a mental health professional, mental health cl clinician and practitioner, I can tell you that I've really worked with mainly severe populations, so the diagnoses I'm providing you are moderate to severe, vast majority of them are severe, and they're very difficult to cope with. Um, I tried to think which ones stood out as the most severe, and I really couldn't identify one. Each of these diagnoses is very hard to have as an Enneagram number. Now, remember, this is just your number. This isn't you, okay? If you identify as one of these numbers, that doesn't mean that this is who you are. This is just the Enneagram number in the context of the Enneagram. So please be mindful in that space and uh, you know, exercise discretion when I share this information with you and really utilize it uh, for, again, a moment of self-reflection and you do some research on your own. But don't take it as an official diagnosis for your own mental health because uh, mental health is quite complex, despite what Google has empowered people to believe. Um, it's incredibly difficult to navigate and really does deserve um, the credit of being uh, discussed and explored with someone who uh, knows exactly what they're talking about and, and you've given yourself permission for them to examine your Mm, symptomology. And that's important for me to say. When we, when I sit here and I diagnose Enneagram numbers, I'm diagnosing the energies, so to speak, and I'm trying to give examples to you as what each energy represents in the context of the healing arts and the context of mental health and how we can utilize a tool like Enneagram to spiritually grow, right? Because um, ultimately what we're looking at here is an opportunity for us to change. Um, and in the in, for the better. <clears throat> okay, so I diagnosed Enneagram One with obsessive compulsive disorder. That's probably really obvious, but it is just pretty perfect for an Enneagram One. Uh, they really could struggle with obsessive compulsive disorder. For Enneagram Two, I, I diagnosed Enneagram Two energy with hypochondrios hypochondriasis, um, and you know. Obsessive compulsive disorder is this uh, really you're you're looking for um, symbols, you're looking for indications, you're looking for hope, you're utilizing behaviors to try and create a change or to create a sense of safety. Um, hypochondriosis is um, a need to constantly feel as though doom is right at is about to occur, and there's never um, a moment for. Uh, ease or, or peace, right? And that's the Enneagram 2. The Enneagram 3 I diagnosed with adjustment disorder. There's just a very difficult time adjusting to change and accepting reality for what it is. Enneagram 3 really struggles. This energy really struggles with um, accepting things for what they are and really is uh, constantly trying to escape. Enneagram 4 I diagnosed with agoraphobia. The anxiety, the intensity of the fear of being discovered is so immense, they won't even go outside. You know, it's so much pressure. The potential of getting hurt is so immense that agoraphobia keeps us indoors. Then I have uh, number Enneagram 5 is schizophrenia. The, um, just the ability to tap out of reality because the necessity to have boundaries is immense. And it can create a notion of paranoia. Um, an extreme sense of paranoia. But schizophrenia doesn't just always look like uh, paranoia, by the way. Um, but schizophrenia paranoia in particular, I think, is really applicable to the Enneagram 5 energy. And then we have Enneagram 6 energy. And this is where I would put major depressive disorder. Enneagram 6 energy really does have a depression about it. And it's just a very... Um, it can really be a lethargic energy because there's a, quite a bit of pressure to perform with the Enneagram 6, and it can lead to a great place of um, darkness. 
And then we have Enneagram 7, and I diagnosed Enneagram 7 with bipolar disorder. And that's very uh, very fitting because the Enneagram 7 really loves um, extremes, and bipolar disorder is a place where extremes uh, thrive and allow a person to go from one end to the other. And then I gave um, Enneagram 8 post-traumatic stress disorder. And I gave Enneagram 8 post-traumatic stress disorder because it's a lot of unresolved traumas. You know, the energy of the Enneagram 8 is a lot of uh, unresolved childhood wounds that really ends up being projected onto society and projected onto people around them in their effort to make peace with their sense of being violated. So it's a very post-traumatic stress disorder type energy that Enneagram 8 can carry. And then the Enneagram 9, I diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder. And that's really this uh, ability for Enneagram 9 energy to just check out of reality, just check out and go into another place and pretend that nothing ever happened. It's really interesting, um, the energy around Enneagram 9. So yes, um, now we will come full circle now that I've diagnosed each number according to personality type and uh, moderate to severe mental health diagnosis. I hope that this can help you in your journey of understanding Enneagram and any motivation that you may have um, that helps keep you uh, grounded in, in who you are. Uh, you can find uh, a lot of really wonderful material about Enneagram through Richard Rohr or the Riso and Hudson um, Institute. There's also the Enneagram Institute. I strongly encourage you. There's also um, Helen Palmer. She writes some really excellent material uh, surrounding Enneagram. So now that we have uh, had such an extensive autumnal equinox moment to uh, come back to the body and really lay some foundation for what this season has in store, I just want to talk to you a little bit about what we're looking forward to here. I, um, you know, I'm excited to journey with, uh, with each of you through Enneagram, and I hope that spiritual tools like Enneagram can be of helpful or of help to you on your journey with divine. I also hope that you, um, are able to really take a step back and to recognize that when we look at mysticism and we look at the occult and when we look at divine and we look at creation, we're looking at centuries of information surrounding, um, really the understanding of who, uh, of what it means to be a child of, of, of divine. And it's, pretty uh pretty powerful work and if you're new to Enneagram please take the test uh that I will uh cite in the episode below and explore it and you know um find comfort in knowing that every single individual on the planet is a human being nobody can escape the DSM nobody can escape um any sort of aspect of healing that comes with self-awareness and recognition. It's just not possible. We each are very flawed, and it's just how it goes. So um, recognize and remember that, um, you know, I love every Enneagram number on the Enneagram, and I am blessed by all of the Enneagram numbers in my life that have taught me how to be the best version of myself. I certainly know that as an Enneagram 8, it is not easy to be in relationship with me. Um, the 8's greatest fear in particular is um, being loved. And so to be in relationship with the Enneagram 8 is quite, well, with this Enneagram 8 is, is quite difficult. So I'm grateful for the people who do love me and who are consistent in their love for me and who continue to journey the, um, the process of how deeply afraid of being hurt I am as a human being. And I also want to just uh, be mindful and recognize that not everybody's story is going to be the same and not everybody's ability to identify their number is going to be the same. So take your time, enjoy the process, go slow, and... Um, just enjoy it. It's a really beautiful spiritual tool, and I'm blessed to be able to sit here with you and provide some um, diagnostic material that can maybe help with uh, behavior patterns or any sort of coping skill that may be um, or difficult to identify um, outside of, uh, uh, you know, uh, maybe in, in a 
one-to-one setting, so to speak. So let's come back to the body. We're going to take a deep breath in. Hold it. Exhale. One more time. Inhale. Happy autumnal equinox, my dearest listeners. We will continue to explore spiritual tools to help keep us grounded throughout this season. I strongly encourage you to eat the fruits of your labor, to uh, put the fruits that no longer serve you to compost, and to really uh, embrace the second harvest at hand because that's what autumn is all about. If you haven't been able to bear much fruit this season, it's okay. If you've lost a lot of fruit, it's okay. There is um, a lot about um, life that is confusing, and autumn gives us permission to let go of that and to start again. It's a really beautiful time. I will um, be thinking of you, and I will see you on the next new moon. Uh, Many blessings to each of you, and I will uh, be thinking of you. like to engage the feminine dialogue, please feel free to send an email to PriscillaHeinLCSW at gmail.com. Additionally, when you search for us on Apple Podcasts or share us with your friends, remind them and yourself to give us a five-star rating.